Welcome to the fourth Sunday of Advent, and uh, welcome back to our studies in the prophet Isaiah, uh, his section, uh, which is sometimes called the Book of Emmanuel. We've looked at a number of the chapters so far, and today we're going to continue that. Last week, we looked at that beautiful section in chapter 9 that uh, is a word to those who are in dark places. And uh, the word is that uh, light will come, but uh, the suffering is real. We looked at the, uh, the context, the original context of, of that message was to uh, Israelites who were living in the northern part of Israel, right up near the, the Lebanon border, uh, particularly the two uh, tribal allocations to two of Jacob's sons, to Zebulun and to Naphtali, uh, an area that's also called Galilee, and uh, it is transected by an international highway called the Way of the Sea. And, and we noted that Isaiah is very specific on this area. He wants us to focus on that because it's in this very area where there is an extraordinary amount of darkness. Uh, it's a darkness which is the darkness of oppression, uh, because the Assyrians are shortly going to come right down that uh, highway and invade the northern part of Israel. So this is the area that will take the brunt of that invasion with all the brutality that's associated with it. So it's a dark place in that respect. It's also a dark place because it's spiritually dark. It's, it's spiritually dark because it's very mixed religiously, it is, after all, called Galilee of the Gentiles, and uh, uh, it's an area of very mixed population, and so the knowledge of the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, is, what do we say, in that area, it's faint. Uh, it's mixed with many other religious ideologies, and so there's spiritual darkness there as well, but the wonderful word of hope is that for those who dwell in darkness, a light has shined. And uh, of course, that light then is associated with the coming of the Emmanuel child who will bring God's truth into that area. And we noted that uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy uh, waits for centuries before it's fulfilled. But in the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, notice Nazareth is in Zebulun, uh, who then, when he begins his public ministry of preaching and teaching in the cities of Galilee, moves to Capernaum, right along the way of the sea. And from here, uh, the word concerning the coming kingdom of God uh, and his teaching flows out into that area to those who dwell in darkness. That's a long wait, isn't it? If you're in darkness. 800 years. I guess that 
I guess that could even teach us some stuff about patience, huh? As we uh, experience even the darkness of our time and uh, the sense of, of oppression that a lot of people have just from this virus and the impact on our culture. And <clears throat> if you're like me, you want it over yesterday. Uh, imagine how it was for the people in Isaiah's day. And they didn't, they didn't see the end of it in their lifetime. Now, I'm not saying anything about the virus, of course. Uh, and we all hope that there's going to be a quick change in this. But if things don't change as quickly as we'd liked, there are lessons here about patience and trust and waiting for God to move and looking to his promises, living as people of hope even in times of darkness, right? That's what the message of Isaiah was about. Today we're going to skip chapter 10. Chapter 10 is largely judgment pronounced against Assyria. We're going to go to chapter 11, which is the, the final chapter in what's called the, the book of Emmanuel. Well-known uh, passage that I'm going to call the root and the shoot. So follow along as I read. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. 
Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will subdue Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. Well, a lot's going on in this prophecy. Let's uh, pull out a number of themes here. First, let's talk about the shoot from the stump that we encounter in verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. So we're talking here about David's kingly line. All right? Now you say, well, why, why, isn't, why isn't it the stump of David? Why is it the stump of Jesse? Jesse was never king. David is the first in that family to have kingship, right? So why is Jesse mentioned? Good question. At least I think it's a good question. I don't have an answer for it. Uh, it's only in this chapter that twice we hear about the root of Jesse or the stump of Jesse. And uh, everywhere else, nine other times in Isaiah, when Isaiah refers to David, he, he refers to David, not to David's father. So for some reason in this chapter, it's the root of Jesse. But it's clearly David's kingly line. And you can see from the image that the kingly line is in trouble. There's only a stump. The tree has been cut down. Now, uh, I'm not sure just what the implication of the, the stump is in a specific way. Uh, remember that by this time, by Isaiah's time, there's already been a civil war. And the house of David has lost a large part of its constituency. Ten of the twelve tribes seceded, and they are now Israel in the north. David's house has only the tribe of Judah, which is his own family, and the, the small tribe of Benjamin. So, uh, clearly, it's the trees in trouble. In, uh, in Isaiah's day, the kingship it has fallen on hard times. Uh, but there still is a line. That line of David will go on for another century and a half up to Zedekiah. Zedekiah will, be, will, will go off to captivity in Babylon. That will end David's ruling line all the way down to the time of Jesus. So the stump may be prospective. It may be looking ahead and saying, this is what's going to happen, or it, it may, say, may be saying, this has already happened in part, at least. Uh, David's line is in trouble. His rule has already been uh, greatly uh, attenuated. That's the stump of Jesse. But, but the word from Isaiah is that the stump 
is going to have a shoot or a branch which suggests new life. Now, you, you've had enough experience with this and seen enough of it, I guess, to know that some trees, when you cut them down, that's the end. The stump just roots in the ground. But sometimes when you cut down a tree, uh, I've got a mimosa tree that, uh, that was on my property when I purchased it uh, almost 40 years ago, and I decided I didn't want it. Uh, I cut it down. I bored it full of holes. I poured chemicals into it, and that sucker just keeps every year, just pushing new shoots. I mean, some stumps are like that. There's, there's a lot of energy, life energy in them. Well, the stump of David or the stump of Jesse here is like that. There is energy in that stump, and Isaiah looks to a day when the stump is going to produce a fresh shoot, a branch. This, uh, this then becomes a, the branch becomes a, a messianic title. And later prophets pick this up. Jeremiah and Zechariah both pick up this idea of the branch as a title for the coming Davidic descendant, the king who's going to rule. The days are coming, Jeremiah says, when I will raise up to David... A righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Now that, that sounds to me like he's reading Isaiah chapter 11 and meditating on it and, and God is speaking afresh through him. This is going to happen. The, the king is going to come and he will be the fresh branch. And remember, Jeremiah speaks in a day when when Judah itself is collapsing, he lives through the Babylonian conquest and the end of kingship. He sees the complete cutting off of Jesse's line, David's line. But here's the word of God coming to him. Again, hope in a very hopeless time. There will be a righteous branch and then what is so remarkable about this is verse 10. The shoot is the root. Do you see how it changes? In verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. But in verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. Now, you don't have to be a botanist. To, to understand this change of imagery, I think. Huh? The, uh, the shoot comes from the stump. The roots don't come from the stump. <laughs> the stump is produced by the roots. They, they are what give life energy. And so... It's clear that in verse 1 and verse 10, we're talking about the same person. But in an extraordinary way, this person is described as both offspring, the shoot, but also the root that sustains the trunk. Uh, 
I've been fascinated by this, so I've looked at different commentators because I've wanted to see what they had to say about it. You know what they had to say about it? Nothing. Zero. Zip. Now, I'm, I'm sure there's somebody out there, but of the commentators I looked at, nobody touches this, in part because it's, it, it's an idea that would seem to be, in its implications, far beyond where Isaiah himself would have had any understanding. But that it is a significant difference, I think, is shown for us when we come to the very end of our New Testament and to actually the, chapter, the last chapter of the Bible, almost the last verse, when, when the risen Messiah speaks to the Apostle John, notice what he says. I am the root and offspring of David. That, that appears to me to be a clear reference back to Isaiah. Again, it's hard to think that Isaiah has any comprehension of the implications of what he's saying. But those implications become clearer when we see its fulfillment. That the one who is the descendant of David, the offspring of David, is at the same time David's Lord and source. This is the one who says, I am the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the one who is, the one who was, and the one who will be. The Lord Almighty. The root and offspring of David. So there's an extraordinary prophecy that is given here. The shoot from the stump that is also the root. And then Isaiah talks to us about the character of this Davidic king who is going to come, this Messiah. And uh, we want to pick up a couple things here. The first thing he says is that the Spirit of God will abide on this king and be with him. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of God will abide on him. Now, you, you probably recall that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God fairly frequently comes on particular people especially to help them accomplish God's will in particular situations. So the Spirit of God comes upon Samson to enable his mighty works. Uh, the Spirit of God uh, comes on various kings, on various priests, uh, and on the prophets. And so on the Messiah... The branch that is going to appear, the Spirit of God will be active here. And, and there's, I think, a particular emphasis here that the Spirit of God comes and abides on him. So what happens in the fulfillment? Well, in the fulfillment, Jesus of Nazareth 
who is about to begin his public ministry of preaching the kingdom of God, to bring light in the darkness of Galilee of the Gentiles. Before he does that, he goes out to visit his cousin, John the baptizer, and he's baptized in the Jordan River. And this stained glass gives us some of the components of the picture, right? Uh, The word from heaven is, this is my beloved son. Now remember that in the Old Testament, son was part of the description of the Davidic kings. Son shows that particular relationship of love and closeness. So the Old Testament kings that is, the Davidic kings, are sons of God. You're not to think literally here, right? But to think in this picture, this metaphorical sense. They they have a closeness to God. That's the ideal. So that when they act, they act for God. They bring God's rule to the people of God. That's the theory. They often didn't live by the theory, but that was the theory. So in the fulfillment, when the the true king comes, the righteous branch, what will mark him? He will be the beloved son. This is my beloved son. In him I'm well pleased. And at the same time, symbolized by the dove here, The Spirit of God descends upon him to enable him to do the work of the righteous branch, to bring light into the darkness. And the Spirit of God comes not to depart, but to be with him always. And and I, I think that John's Gospel gives us the emphasis Uh, Then John, now this is John the Baptist, then John the Baptist gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. It's that continuity. So that, as a result, everything that the Messiah does, everything, is perfectly aligned with the purposes of God. See, he can say to his opponents and detractors, he can say, I do always the things that please the Father. Why? Because he is in perfect alignment. He is the bearer of the Spirit of God. So he always acts in accordance with God's purpose. God's will is always brought to completion perfectly in him. He's not only aligned with God's purpose, but he is dependent on God's enabling. See, the Spirit Spirit brings God's power to human beings. And, And even with the beloved Son there is still this dependence and acknowledgement of relationship to God and the need for God's empowering. So so Jesus 
acts out of the power of the Holy Spirit who descends upon him and abides with him. In verse 5, we're told that he acts with righteousness and with faithfulness. They are the belt around his waist. Verse 4, with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He acts with righteousness. He does what's right, and he does it particularly with regard to those who are poor and who are oppressed. Now, we shouldn't, we shouldn't miss that. Uh, I, I think that, that that easily happens to uh, conservative people, right? We we kind of gloss past this <clears throat> biblical concern, this divine concern for the poor and God's concern for the poor, for the oppressed. What are the, what's the, the widows, the orphans, the aliens, right? The immigrants. God loves the aliens. That's what Scripture says. And the Messiah who comes will give judgments to care for those who are oppressed, to those who are marginalized, who are pushed out of the normal circles of power. That will be part of his concern. And then he will act with faithfulness. Faithfulness is, is reliability, trustworthiness. People will trust this king and they will rely on him. And his character is such that, that he merits that reliance, right? He is worthy of trust. He is faithful in what he does. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. I don't know... Uh, I'm not sure what to make of the, the garment idea, right? Particularly the belt. Uh, it may be that the belting is, is suggestive of readiness for action. I mean, sometimes we use the belt that way, right? Uh, and that may be what's being said of the Messiah. He, he will be belted with righteousness and faithfulness because he's ready to act, and he's going to act in those ways. But this will be his character, dependent upon the Spirit, totally aligned with God's purposes, acting in righteousness and faithfulness. <clears throat> and then Isaiah also talks about the kingdom which this righteous branch is going to establish upon the earth. And we pick up a, a couple notes that are developed later on in Scripture about the nature of this uh, kingdom. First, it will be marked by uh, a restored world, restored nature. Quite an, a lengthy section of this, uh, 
from 6 down through 9. The wolf living with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf and the lion together, a little child leading them, and, and, and all the rest. There are some people who say this is simply a picture of the peace that uh, the Messiah's reign will bring between peoples. More, more aggressive people and uh, the weaker, and they will live in peace, harmony, shalom. Now, I think, that's, I, th- I think that may be part of the picture, but I think there's more than that. I, th- I think this is a conscious look back to the creation story and to the Garden of Eden. To the situation that the Bible describes briefly prior to the entrance of sin into the world. There is then a return to Eden, to a place where life develops without conflict and cruelty and oppression, without violence. This is a picture, uh, again, of that shalom, right, where where life flourishes as it's intended to flourish by God. And the righteous branch that will spring from Jesse's line will ultimately bring about a world in which all of nature is restored. Now, how that works, uh, I don't think it's, it's meaningful to spend much time thinking about that. Uh, how, how a lion can eat straw like an ox, right? Uh, and I don't, think that's the pic- I, I don't think that's the purpose of this. I, I think it's a grand picture of life restored. We, ha- we live with the sense that life is not all that it should be. But the vision here is that one day it will be. That's the hope that shines into the darkness and distress of Isaiah's world and indeed even into our world. Paul talks about this just very uh, briefly when he says in Romans chapter 8 that the whole of creation groans to this very day waiting for its liberation. And it's a liberation, he says, which will take place in conjunction with the, the liberty of the glory of the children of God. So that somehow when God's purposes of redemption are complete, for the human race, it will include all of creation as well. It's a grand, grand vision. Nature restored. And then Isaiah talks about a new exodus and a unified Israel. He says in verse 15 that the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea with a scorching wind. He will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. Now notice he's talking both about the empire in the north, Assyria, where the Euphrates runs, and he's talking about the Egyptian sea to the south. The Euphrates, he says, will be broken into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. What does that suggest? Crossing over water as if it's dry land. What does that suggest? A sweeping wind. Well, 
it suggests the exodus that Moses led the people through when they crossed the Red Sea. And so in verse 16, he says, there'll be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. This is a kind of second exodus that he envisions. Remember, he lives during the period of time when those 10 tribes are invaded, oppressed, destroyed, when 27,000 people are taken off into exile. He's envisioning a day when that is reversed. And indeed, more than that, not just a return from Assyria, but in verse 11 he says, in that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from lower Egypt, so there's the north and the south, from upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He envisions a massive dispersal of the Jewish people and then a regathering. A kind of new exodus that brings them back. And notice with that, he envisions a unified Israel. Verse 13, Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. Judah has been living with the aftermath of a civil war 300 years before. But for the prophets, the purpose of God, the will of God, is always that those people, those tribes should be unified. And part of Isaiah's vision is that in this future day, they will be unified. But it goes beyond that in in quite a remarkable fashion. That in verse 10 he says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Isaiah's vision is not just for a regathered Israel. It's for a gathering of the nations. There's a universal perspective here that is quite remarkable. All the nations united together with God's Messiah as the rallying point and the rallying person to gather them. I think it kind of reaches its high point in chapter 19 in Isaiah. Look what this says. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria... With Egypt and Assyria, the historic enemies, Israel will be a third that day, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So I've I got a couple questions that I'm planning on asking Isaiah someday. I, I do want to ask him 
what he understood by saying that the branch, the shoot, is also the root. Uh, that's still a problem in my mind. But this is the one I really want to talk to him about. In his day, with Assyria being such a feared oppressor, Egypt being the historical enemy to the south, what did he understand? What was his expectation in this extraordinary word? What did, what did the people of Jerusalem think about this? This, this is, I mean, this is like saying that Russia and the U.S. are going to get together and have a party. But this is the kingdom that is a vision. This is the light. This is the, the light of hope that shines into the darkness of our world. Two and a half millennia ago, this shone. And then in the fullness of time, a child was born. The Emmanuel child. The God with us child. And he is the one, as we sing sometimes in, in that great Christmas song, in his name all oppression will cease. This is our hope. We, it's our hope because we haven't seen it yet. We've seen parts of it. We've experienced some of that light shining into our own souls. We've seen some of that light shining into the world, but there's still so much darkness to be eradicated. But in Isaiah's day, there were people, there was a remnant of people who looked for the coming of the light, and when the light did shine, eight centuries later, they saw it and they believed. And so in our day, there are people, like you and me, I trust, who look for the light and wait for its full shining, who believe that the king has come and that he will come again. And for that, we wait in confident hope, whether we live to see it now or not, we believe that it is coming and we take hope even in the darkest times because God is faithful, his word is true, and he keeps his promises. Here's our hope. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Merry Christmas. This is our good news. Let's pray. Lord, we still live in times of great darkness. We experience it on an international level, on a national level, and locally, and Lord, even in our own individual lives, sometimes our hearts just feel dark and heavy. But we hear these good words from so long ago that light is coming, 
that the righteous branch from Jesse's stump will come and set the world to rights. Lord, we do long for that day. And we take great heart in knowing that that promise was fulfilled in part in the coming of Jesus into the world, in his life, in his ministry, and then so powerfully in his death on our behalf. And now we await his return, the king to whom all authority has been given in heaven and earth. And we pray, O Lord Jesus, come. Come and claim your rightful place as Lord of all. And in this time, as we wait, may we be your faithful people. Lights in the darkness. Those who trust your word, who seek to honor you, encourage us this day with your presence with us. Emmanuel, the God who is with us. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. Go in the peace of Christ and have a blessed Christmas day.